2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes
3: everything.
5: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, including your stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today... We have a story from Rhode Islander Joe Jutras. Joe is a retired cabinet maker, and since his retirement, he has dedicated most of his time to growing giant fruit and vegetable. In 2017, he broke the record for the largest green squash ever grown, coming in at 2,118 pounds. Here's Joe with his story.
4: I've been growing giant vegetables now for the last 25 years. Got started years ago, just by accident. I started growing vegetables in my backyard. I threw in a giant pumpkin seed. I grew it to 124 pounds. And from then on, I was hooked. A couple of years later, I got hooked up with a gentleman here in Rhode Island. His name is John Castellucci. He's like the godfather of pumpkin growing here in uh, New England. He started in the early 90s. He had great success, real gentleman, helped anybody that wanted to learn how to grow pumpkins. So my friend, Steve Spurry and I, we, uh, we spent a lot of time in his house, just drinking some beers and learning how to grow pumpkins. And from then on, we just got hooked and enjoyed growing, met people from all over the world.
1: This hobby attracts people from all strains of life, from cabinet makers to scientists. There seems to be an addictive quality to growing these giant fruits and vegetables.
4: It's remarkable how many people you meet that all have the same interest of growing fruit and just enjoy being outside uh, growing these large vegetables. It's been one of the best parts. I know my wife really enjoys it. We have get-togethers, we have cruises that we go on with pumpkin people. It's, it's very competitive, but then again, it's such a, a long season. We, we start these fruit in beginning of April, and we're not finished a lot of these way off until October, so you know, you've know, you got a fruit on the hook for like 100, 110, 120 days. That, that's a long time to have a fruit being healthy, and a lot of things can happen, a lot of weather-related problems you can run into, and bugs and diseases, and it, it takes a lot to get a, a pumpkin to the finish line. So. When we go to these wayoffs, we're all happy for each other just to, to see everybody getting a fruit there. And a lot of people grow multiple fruit just so that you do uh, have a fruit at the wayoff time. Hopefully, <laughs> to get the full advantage of your growing season, you want to try to get these in probably about three or four weeks before your last frost. Which means you have to grow them in a greenhouse. We use heating cables to warm up the soil. We use. Uh, Lights, we use like a small greenhouse. My greenhouses are like a five by seven. After we've got the pumpkin going, I'd say we've grown them in that greenhouse for probably four or five weeks. It's probably about the first week of May by the time we take it out here in Rhode Island. And the race is on. We're growing these plants. Uh, You're trying to set this fruit out on the main vine, probably 10 to 12 feet at least, preferably 14 to 16 feet is even better. You've got probably 10 side vines on either side of the fruit, and uh, your plant's probably 500 square feet, 400 square feet at pollination time. And by that time, your fruit at 20 days old is really starting to put on the weight. You could be putting anything on, like maybe 30 pounds a day at, at 20 days old, and by 25 days old, you could be putting 30 pounds on, and by 40 days, you could be putting 40 or 50 pounds on if, if you know you've really got one hooked up. I was fortunate enough to, in 2006, grow a world record long gourd. Actually, the very first time I, I tried, I, I grew a world record. And the year after that, 2007, I had started a new garden, and I, I grew the world record pumpkins. And ever since then, I was trying to grow the world's largest green squash. It's a different, It's similar to a pumpkin, but the color is different, just a a little different in growing them. The earlier ones back in uh, 2007, 2008, they were harder to grow. I think what happened, the gene pool was so closely related that they had a lot of problems with pollinations and there weren't as many people growing them. There's like nine nine times more people growing giant pumpkins than there are squash.
1: This hobby of giant fruit growing turns out to be quite the science. But a little over the last decade, some people wanted to make their chances of growing a giant green squash a little higher. And after a few years of crossbreeding squashes and pumpkins, there are a lot more people growing giant green squash. Part of the reason this type of fruit is so difficult to grow is that pumpkins and the color orange are actually dominant. So the growers will take the seeds from the squash pumpkin hybrid and plant multiple seeds in hopes to grow a green squash in which they have a one in four chance of getting one. These giant fruits that are being grown have gone through lots of breeding and pollinating seasons in order to become these world record breaking 2,000 pound monster produce. Before these large fruits are brought to scale, the growers try to estimate just how much they will weigh.
4: We have a way of measuring these fruits so we have an idea how heavy they are. I call it OTT, it's over the top measurement where you take a circumference measurement, side to side measurement, front to back measurement, you add them all up and you know it may come up to 480, 500 inches and you put that measurement up against the chart and the chart is changing all the time depending on how heavy the pumpkins get. And it'll give you an estimate of how much your pumpkin should weigh by the cubic inches of your pumpkin. So uh, you have an idea how many pounds is growing Pretty exciting when you can gain 300 pounds a week, 280 pounds a
5: week. And you've been listening to Joe Jutras telling the story about his retirement hobby, which has grown into a pretty serious hobby and a world record-breaking hobby. And my goodness, what it takes to grow one of these monsters, how complex it is, all the exigencies of surviving through 120-day growth season and that's a long time to get from beginning to end as he put it it takes a lot to get a pumpkin that size to the finish line when we come back more of joe jutris's story the giant pumpkin and squash grower from rhode island here on our american stories And we continue with Our American Stories and with Joe Jutras, who holds the world record for growing the largest green squash. He's been sharing with us all that goes into growing these giant fruits and vegetables. Let's return to Joe.
4: You can actually see that pumpkin growing, especially at the beginning. Between day, day 20 to day 40, it changes the shape. Daily and triples, quadruples in size uh, in in that amount of time. Once they start getting bigger, you know every inch is like 10, 10, 11, 12 pounds. So they don't change as much. They you know, like anybody else. They get more more cracks and age spots and uh, <laughs> just about. Uh, and they tend to uh, seem to gain more weight as they get older too. Just like anybody else, you know they start packing on the weight. Just very rewarding to, to see a fruit grow and get it to the scale, and you know, watch other people have their pumpkin come to the scale, and they're thinking it's you know, uh, say, thousand pounds, and it ends up being uh, eleven £1, hundred and fifty pounds. Well, they, they 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 grew quite a bit over the scale. You know, they're double digit heavy, so that, that's great. They adjust this chart all the time so that they're either five percent over or five percent below, uh, trying to be as accurate as they can.
1: In Joe Jutra's first attempt to grow his world record-breaking green squash, he grew 12 plants. And out of the 12, only one was green. And it grew to a mere 1,252 pounds. But in 2017, when he tried again with a different seed, it brought him his world record-breaking green squash of 2,118 pounds.
4: The year I grew the world record squash, you know, you have a very good idea, you've got a good one growing. And that same year, Scott Holbert grew that same 1844 seed. So we both had one going and, you know, your friends, you talk with one another and say, gee, how you doing, Scott? I'm doing, you know, close to 1900 pounds. You say, you're trying to do the math, all right. Mine's mine's close to 2000 pounds. I think I taped out measuring like 2,009 pounds. So if he's taping 1,900 I go light, he goes heavy, you know, either one of us could win. Well, at the end of it, I went 5% heavy, he went 5% light. So (laughs) that's a big difference. In
1: 2017, after a long season of hard work growing these giant produce, the weigh-in day arrived. And getting these fruits to weigh in is quite the process and takes a team effort.
4: It's called Fat Friday. The day before our way off, it's usually on a Saturday, we help help each other out. There's four or five guys that get together and we have a tripod with a harness on that goes around the bottom of the pumpkin. You have a chain fall and you, you're able to lift the pumpkin up by this harness from the uh, tripod without actually having to lift any weight whatsoever. And these fruit now are so big that you have to have a trailer because they won't fit in the back of a pickup truck any longer. So we pick it up in the air, we push the trailer underneath, we let it down, hook it up to the truck, and we pull it out. Now we, we bring it to the, uh, the farm we have this way off in Warren, Rhode Island, Farish's Farm. We set up things for the following day. We usually wait till the end. We weigh the, the biggest ones last by the measurement, go by how it goes. And just that day I won the world record, I was fortunate I had the biggest fruit there, and it ended up Weighing the heaviest, I was very surprised that it went five percent heavy because you know I was just hoping for something that could beat 1844, which was the world record. So that to really come in 2118, it was a, a dream come true. That's for sure, <laughs> to say the least. It's going to be a hard record to beat because that was that was a, that was a, a very uh, very large fruit. Even nowadays, that at the time, that was the 13th largest fruit ever grown, pumpkins and squash. Now, since then, there's probably about another 30 or 40 ones that are as big or bigger than that. But there's not really any green squash that have come close to that other than my uh, 1935.
1: There's no doubt seeing these giant pumpkins or squash on the road would be a sight to see.
4: Well, the funny part of this is when you're going down the road, because some some of these way-offs we go to are in upstate Connecticut near the New York line, and you're on 95, and you've got people taking pictures and hanging out the windows and putting their thumbs up and almost running you off the road. <laughs> it's uh, that, that's the scary part is when you've got people they're not watching where they're going and they're you know they're really excited and they're taking pictures and they're beeping their horns and uh, it's. <laughs> Everyone enjoys a a large pumpkin going down the road. Some people probably have never seen it before, and they're they're really in awe when they do see it. So That's the part that's uh, exciting, and you get to the way off, and you you have families and kids that look at it, and uh, it's like a Christmas tree, a big pumpkin. You know, it's it's something everybody enjoys looking at. There's a, a pumpkin organization called the GPC, and they're something like a government of the pumpkin growers.
1: The GPC is the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth, the organization that makes sure everyone is on the same page when it comes to growing and measuring these giant fruits and vegetables.
4: So it's very important that we do have a GPC to to, uh, control the the pumpkin community and that everybody is is, uh, judged fairly. And we have a, a yearly convention that's put on the by the GPC and that's a good time where everyone gets together. There's usually about two or three hundred people from all over the world. They give out awards and uh, usually the growers who grow the largest squash or fruit or vegetables, depending on what it is, they do a PowerPoint presentation and everyone learns from you know what the newest strategies were, how they did it. And, what what not to do, what to do, uh, is just as important as what to do is what not to do. Uh, what you can learn from other people's mistakes, you certainly don't want to make them all yourself. The best thing about this hobby is the friends that you meet. I think it's you know, I enjoy fishing too, and I've got a bunch of fishing buddies that I really enjoy fishing with. You know, can't wait to talk about the fish we caught and how to catch them and what to use. It's basically the same thing when you're growing giant pumpkins. What are you using to fertilize? What are you using to spray? What are you using for fungicides? Uh, what do you think of this seed? What do you think of that seed? Uh, what are you growing next year? Uh, how'd you do it? <laughs> it's, it's just really a lot of friendship too. It's not only uh, the work of growing them, it's people you meet and the friends you you uh, acquire over the years, it's just uh, just so much fun.
1: Joe Jutris is now in his 60s and he has no intention of stopping his hobby anytime soon.
4: You know, God willing, if um, I'm still fit, and this this sport really uh, really keeps you moving. You know, you're, you're out there, first thing, crack of dawn, working on these plants, stretching and moving and up and down, and there's it, quite a bit of physical work to it. I'd like to do it as long as I can. I, I know my buddy, Eddie, who I'm helping now, he's 83, and. He likes growing these fruit as much as anybody I know, and he, he just w- can't wait to get up in the morning to get out there and work on them. Granted that you know at 83, you're not able to do it as well as you can at 40 or 50 or 60, but uh, he still still does a heck of a job at it. I know it's not for everybody. It's, it's quite a bit of work. Not everybody has to take it quite as serious as a competitive pumpkin grower. Just to grow one in your backyard, to have a two or 300 pounder on your step, Is a great achievement over the summer, and it's very attainable now with the seeds we have. Just about everybody has room for a, a 10 by 15 foot garden, and you could easily grow two, three, 500 pound fruit without a heck of a lot of work, I think.
5: And a great job, as always, by Faith and Robbie, telling the story of Joe Jutris. And my goodness, what a passion he has. And my goodness, how many of us have a world record in anything? and if it's the squash world record so be it 2118 pounds done in 2017 and Joe's pride and joy but still out there competing and wanting to win and most importantly sharing his hobby with pals and that's what it really is all about we all have those hobbies and what really brings us together is more than the passion for the thing but the people we meet and the friendships we make joe jutris's story here on our american story Visit betterhelp.com slash OAS today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash OAS. BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash OAS.
3: I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico.
6: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
5: And we continue here with our American stories, and we tell stories of all kinds, and particularly the kinds that reveal character, and in this instance, perseverance. Today, we bring you the story of a man who dreamed of being in Major League Baseball, but not on the playing field. Here to tell his story is Joe Klimchak.
7: The love for baseball came from attending my first Pirates game when I was seven. My dad took me to my first game at Three Rivers Stadium. It was love at first sight, it really was. I walked in and and it was everything about the ballpark. It It was the bright green turf. It was the lights, it was the sound of the organ, it was the smells of you know, nachos and, and, and popcorn and, 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 and cotton candy and peanuts, and, and, and you were allowed to smoke then, so it was actually the smell of cigars I liked, and then beer all mixed up into one, so that was great. It was the big jumbotron in center field. It was sensory overload, it was just amazing. Sometimes it just clicks, sometimes you're just like, this, this space makes me really happy, and I thought, this, is, this atmosphere is just amazing. Everybody's happy here. Yeah, you know, even when the Pirates are, are, are losing, you know, and and, and there were years that, they, that we, we we lost more than we won, but there were obviously championship years too. But in the mid '70s, we were good. We were called the Lumber Company. I have my program from my first game. And then, of course, and then the big thing for me was this voice then that came over the PA system, that was rich and deep and beautiful. And I thought, wow, I heard that voice, and I said, I said that's it. Somehow, some way, that's the job I want. I somehow have to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. At the age of seven, I knew exactly what I wanted to do because I thought, this is definitely the place and that's definitely the job I want to do. His name was Art McKinnon, the public address announcer. He was a PA announcer for um, almost 50 years. It was like the tones of a Stradivarius is the way his voice has been uh, described. It it was just so beautiful and, and I made that connection. And My dad would say that when we went to games after that, I would spend as much time in my seat twisted around watching Art on the fourth level make the announcements or watching the radio and TV guys on the third level. And I was just, I was locked into the announcers. First steps, it was researching these guys and reading about them. My first book was Voices of the Game and I read about all the, that was more about, not public address, but the radio announcers, the Harry Carey's, the Harry Calluses, the Vin Scully's. And then it was really just watching these announcers on TV, doing games, sportscasters, game show hosts. I was a big Richard Dawson fan, Bob Barker fan, Alex Trebek fan. It was more about uh, the show, and less about the game, it was, like, it was like what they did, it was their nods, it was their winks, it was their gestures. I was just absorbing all of that. The evening news, the network news, would be Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, watching them, the little, their voice inflection. I just study that constantly, and it would memorize their scripts, I would rehash them. I remember being in our house, and actually my two younger sisters what a blessing it was that they would actually play along with me for at least five minutes, I believe. I was in my bedroom, they were in theirs, and I would actually do a little radio show through the heating vent of my bedroom. Just kind of say, okay, you guys you guys sit here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a couple announcements, read a couple of news stories, give you the scores from last night. And I had to work extra hard because I attended Center School District in, in Beaver County in Aliquippa. And in my class of 186 students, there was only one that needed remedial speech training, and that one was me. And my mom actually saved that intermediate unit form, and I have it um, from 1979. I was 10 years old, and I had uh, I had a bad lisp, couldn't say my s's clearly, and it actually says reason for assignment on the sheet: poor articulation. I, I just generally garbled my words, so um, not a good start for a guy who wants to be a major league baseball announcer. So I had to work extra hard. The lisp thing just was terrible for me, it, it took me so many, so many uh, practice sessions and I still didn't get it. I was, I, was uh, I remember I was in this uh, session with another girl who was in another grade. She wasn't in my grade, she was actually a little younger than me, but she got it right away and I was like, I just couldn't do it. For me to make an S sound, I actually had to bite down and my S's were, which is still kind of sloppy, but that was the best I could do until it finally clicked like a year later. Constant repetition, constant studying announcers memorizing scripts, rehashing scripts. Art McKinnon had a drill that he would actually, he's a longtime PA announcer, he had a drill where he would read through magazine articles and if he skipped a line or had a hiccup or, or messed it up, he would have to go back to the beginning and start again. I would read every article in my Sports Illustrated magazines and when I read through all those I grabbed my mom's Woman's Days and Family Circles and I read all those out loud. So again, I just wanted to get as much repetition as I could because somehow, some way, you know, I wanted to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. So I, I, I'm at Grove City College and majoring in communications. I'm on the radio station staff, and I, I kind of carried that passion for announcing to college because I wanted to get as much experience now that I could there. And with the radio station, I became the sports director, the news director. I hosted a morning show. Um, they had a production studio there. I was always doing announcing in that station. Spent most of my time there. Most of my time was spent there. Um, I was also the public address announcer for all the sports. Not just football and basketball, but the Olympic sports too. I did PA for soccer, for volleyball, for swimming, for baseball. Um, Again, gathering all the communications, announcing experience I could. That's why for me, Grove City College was a perfect fit because I was hands-on. I was able to do that from from my freshman year for four years to do all that announcing. I collected all this great, great experience. And and it was because of that that I was actually, when I was a sophomore, I said, okay now with some real experience now, now I think it's time to let the Pirates know that I'm interested in, in, in working for them because I know in a couple of years it'll be time to graduate and, and I would love to roll right into a big league announcing job, but those jobs don't come open very often. So I remember writing them a letter and at this time now, uh, Art McKinnon, the longtime PA announcer who I heard at the age of seven, he was the backup public address announcer now. He was the backup because he was too old, he was in his 80s. Tim Tobacco was the regular announcer. Art was doing the games on Sundays. Tim was doing uh, every other game. But I decided to write a letter to the Pirates and say, Pirates, dear Pirates, my name's Joe. I've collected all this announcing experience. I know you have a regular public address announcer and a backup public address announcer, but I really think, I really, really think you need a backup to the backup public address announcer. That's what you need, because just in in the event that Tim and Art can't work a game, you need somebody reliable to fall back on. And I'm your man because I've been listening to these guys for years, memorizing their scripts inside and out, would you please hire me? or at least give me a listen or keep me on the list. So a couple weeks later, they wrote me back. It was like, no, we thank you for your interest, but we uh, have two announcers already. We don't need a backup to the backup announcer. And I remember the last line actually saved the rejection letter. It said, best of luck in your efforts to work in baseball. And I was like, ah. for me, that sounded like a crushing line because all all my life, all I wanted to do was work for the Pirates It almost sounded like, uh, no thanks and, and, and good luck try somewhere else, we don't have any interest in, in you. But of course, I was uh, obsessed with getting this job, so I wrote them another letter. I said, no, you really need to hire me, you really, really, I, I detailed all my experience, I went into more detail, and they sent me another rejection letter saying, no, really, we really thank you, best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. So I was crushed, two rejection letters now. But I was going to be persistent. I was going to keep trying. I was going to keep going after this. So what I decided to do is actually write a letter to Art McKinnon himself. I wrote to the 85-year-old backup public address announcer, longtime PA legend announcer, Art McKinnon. And I said, Art, I really appreciate what you do. You're, you're, you're amazing. You inspired me to do this. I heard your voice at the age of seven, and I said, that's the job I want. Um, is there any chance that you can work me somehow into the organization. I've tried through the Pirates. They've sent me some rejection letters. I would love to get on a list of announcers, or if you can give me any guidance, any, any help whatsoever, I'd appreciate it.
5: And when we come back, you're going to hear more of this remarkable story of perseverance. We learn early that he didn't have the talent for this, certainly not naturally. He had a lisp, And if you've ever seen the movie The Natural, and again, he's not a natural, and the movie The Natural, a great baseball movie with Robert Duvall and with uh, Robert Redford, Bernard Malamud's classic novel. It was all about a guy who had everything come easy to him and how he squandered it through a a couple of mistakes. This guy, boy, he had to stick at it and stick at it and stick at it. When we come back, you're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story of perseverance and persistence, overcoming objections and rejection. We continue with Joe Klimchak's story, a great Pittsburgh story, a great baseball story, after these commercial messages.
6: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions,
2: 18 plus. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write.
7: Hopefully, having
5: conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. And we're back with the rest of Joe Klimchak's story here on Our American Stories. At the age of seven, he knew he wanted to be a big league announcer for the Pittsburgh Pirates. When we last left off, he'd written a letter to the man who inspired his dream, longtime Pittsburgh Pirates announcer Art McKinnon. Let's get back to Joe.
7: I'm now working at Grove City College. I've graduated and the college, uh, it was a real blessing. They hired me to work as their sports information director. met my wife of now 27 years, Jennifer, at the college. And uh, we were going back to my apartment uh, one night. And uh, this is back in the days of answering machines that flashed when there was a message. So there was a big red one, hit play. And I can remember like it was yesterday. Joe, this is Art McKinnon. I have your letter here, your very nice letter. I'm under the weather, but I promise to write you back. Goodbye, Joe. I remember I cried when I heard that. I was like, oh, my goodness. Art McKinnon has called me, Joey Klimchak, up here in Grove City, Pennsylvania, uh, and he's going to write me back. And I, I, from returning to Jen, I said, that's the crack in the door I needed. Somehow, someway, one day, I'm going to be an announcer in a big league ballpark. It's going to happen. Art did write me back. He was true to his word. He wrote me back. Actually, he didn't write me back. He typed me back. It was this typewritten letter that I actually have hanging on my wall right now. And he essentially, the letter said, Appreciate your kind comments, and uh, you feel you, you appear very qualified to do public address. But uh, my connections aren't what they once used to be, and I really can't help you. Um, but don't pass up on any bets. Work hard, and 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 essentially saying, not in so many words, best of luck on your efforts to work in baseball. That's kind of like, I felt like it was it was the same thing from Artie would say I can't help you, but but thanks for writing and, and good luck. And I was like, ah, oh. again I, I felt a little crushed again, but. Uh, was not going to be deterred, kept pushing. I wrote Art back again, and I said, Art, thank you so much for the letter. And I'm not a pushy guy, but I got a little pushy with Art in a way. I said, Art, is there any way that I can actually watch you do public address for an inning during a Sunday game? I actually picked out the game. September 20th, Pirates against the Phillies, 1992. Can I show up at the ballpark and watch you do public address? Didn't know what he would say. He wrote me back, received your letter, don't buy tickets, Report to Press Gate A, and I'll see you on September 20th. I was like, Wow, this is great. So Jennifer and I show up that day. It was a beautiful day. I remember Mickey Morandini. The Phillies turned a triple play that day. I remember everything about that day. It was only for six outs, but it was amazing. I felt like it was, you know, just it was out of body. I was on cloud nine. But those six outs came and went. He turned around. He shook my hand. He said, Thank you. Walked me out the door. And and then Tim Debacco, who's the regular announcer, he was there. Shook his hand. He said, Nice to meet you. And he said. Good luck. And next thing you know, I'm out in section 600-whatever sitting there with Jennifer saying, well, okay, that was great and all, but I made some good contacts, I suppose, but I'm really not there. I haven't got my big break yet. Yet, I, I, I was still waiting. I have not gotten my big break yet. So I was still a little frustrated, but my big break did finally come months later. I'm working at Grove City College, Sports Information Director. It's lunch break and I was gonna head down to get a sandwich on Main Street. And I turn on an AM radio station, a small Mercer County radio station, WPIC, and the announcer is Dave Hanahan, and he comes on the air, and why he read this announcement, I have no idea. This is Mercer County, this is like 60, 70 miles north of Pittsburgh, but he read this. He said that the Pirates have decided to, this upcoming season, have high school games after pirates games on sundays and the first one was going to be i believe it was like may 16th i remember the two teams it was going to be greater latrobe against Derry. and i heard that and instantly i was like oh my goodness light bulb went off i'm not going to get a sandwich today i'm going to double back to my office this was before cell phones. so i got to my office phone called the pirates obviously thinking like they needed an announcer for these games So it took a long time to find the person in charge. Finally, they got on the line. They said, we actually hadn't even considered having an announcer for this game. Since you're interested, sure, we'll we'll listen to a tape. Got to the production studio. Of course, I'd memorized the scripts inside and out, knew all the formatics and everything, the pauses, the inflections. The lady's name was Jackie. She called me back the next day. She said, Joe, we heard your tape. And if you're willing to work for free, congratulations. You are the announcer of our high school games after Pirates games on Sundays. I was like, wow, that's great. I'll see you there on May 16th. I'll show up. I can't wait to do this. Um, so that was a big break for me. That that was huge. I mean, uh, you know, I would have done anything for free. I would have swept the floors for free. But the chance to announce in the big league ballpark, that was that was amazing. I'm in the same booth, not just in the booth now, but I'm at Art McKennan's microphone. That was crazy, announcing in this stadium with 60,000 seats. Never mind that only 60 of them were full for my games. But it was still a great experience. I did that for uh, for a year. Months later, the Pirates gave me a call, and they let me know that the Pirates are going to be soon having an audition for the backup public address announcer position. Art McKinnon is now too old to be the backup PA announcer, so they asked me if I'd be interested in showing up. They knew that I'd written those letters years ago. They knew that I was a high school announcer. They expected that I would be interested in it, and obviously I was. They said, sure, I'd love love that. So I showed up uh, for this audition, hoping it would just be me and a couple other people, but it was me and eight other people. And they were all people from the Pittsburgh media. And I was like, oh, no. So on paper, I really had no chance at winning this audition. I was a kid just a couple years out of college. These were all seasoned professionals. They probably actually handpicked these people to come in. These are guys I've been—and actually, there was one lady, too, that I've been listening to and watching for years. So we're all assembled, nine people, auditioning to become the backup public address announcer for the Pirates. They take us up to the booth one by one. Got to be my turn. And uh, they said, okay, Joe, here's your first announcement. It's, It's the crowd control announcement. And I actually said, I, I don't need this script. I thought, I actually, I know that one by heart. So I opened up the microphone. Ladies and gentlemen, we remind you, please do not go onto the field or in any way interfere with baseball still in play or throw objects of any kind. So I knew that one by heart. Did it, it went well. I actually knew that one backward. I knew that one backward. Play and still baseballs with interfere, weigh any in or field the two on go, not do please, you remind we gentlemen and ladies. It was crazy. Like, when you when you want something that bad, you get a little freakish about it. And I was freakish about getting this job. This is a week after the audition, and my director came over and said, Joe, congratulations. You won the audition. You're now the backup public address announcer of the Pittsburgh Pirates. That was huge. I I was excited. I was like, wow, Okay, I I finally did it. Um, But I'm just the backup. And when you're the backup, you don't get many games. I got my first game. They actually gave me my first game. Usually, I would would only get a game when Tim can't make the game. He'd have to be sick or have some kind of family emergency. But they gave me my first game, May 26, 1994. Again, remember, like it was yesterday, it was a 13-inning game. Pirates won 11-10 over the Mets. And it was, it, was just, it was just, ah, it was a dream come true for me. The next season I worked three games, but after seven seasons as the backup public address announcer, I'd only done seven games. It's the late 90s now and they were rolling over 2000 and they're building PNC Park. And they opened it up in 2001 and I went to my director and I said, Eric, I'm obviously as the backup PA announcer not working many games. Is there any chance there might be a new job in the scoreboard department that I could do to work more games? There was a Pepsi bottle that sat over the Clemente wall when they opened up PNC Park. And when the Pirates hit a home run, smoke came out of the Pepsi bottle. It was my job when the Pirates hit a home run to hit the button that made the smoke come out of the Pepsi bottle for 81 home dates a year in 2001, 2, 3, 4. So 2005 rolls around. And what we do before every season is we have a rehearsal at the ballpark before opening day. It's an empty ballpark. It's late March. I'm in my Pepsi smoke chair. We're gonna play a simulated game up on the video board, and if the pirates hit a home run, y'all hit the button, but otherwise I have nothing to do. I'm going through the pre-game script, and I see there's a little line that says Radio MC. That means that somebody from the Pittsburgh media comes to the ballpark, and they stand on the field and address the crowd and say, like they say their name, the station they're from, when their shift is. And I said, okay, it's snowing, it's late March, it's an empty ballpark, nobody's showing up for this position. I went to my director, I said, Eric, Since I have nothing to do in the pregame, can I go down, can I be the radio MC today? And he looked at me and said, you wanna do that? I I said, I'd love to. He said, grab a microphone. Grabbed the microphone, went down to the field, found the camera guy, and at 6.42 they cued me. And I'm a big preparation guy, but I really hadn't prepared for this. All my announcing really had been not on screen. This was the first thing on the video board. So I got a camera, I didn't even know where to look, but I assumed look into the camera, and it went well. And after that rehearsal, my director tapped me on the shoulder and he said, "He said, Joe, we watched you there and we thought it looked really good and we would like you to actually, if you're interested, host one of the games we play between innings on the video board. At the end of the fourth inning, you'll leave your Pepsi Smoke Guy position, you'll go down to the Riverwalk, and for for that half inning, you'll play a game with a fan and then come back to the scoreboard room. I said, that'd be great. So now I'm actually announcing it all 81 games. and then. It, A couple years later, and now I'm doing like five inning breaks. The next year, I'm doing all of pregame, and and now I sit here 15 years later. I've been the in-game host of the Pittsburgh Pirates, and I have about nine in-game breaks, all of pregame. I don't take a single day for granted. And this is 15 years later, and I'm just as excited 15 years later as I was the first day I did this job. When I walk onto the field, and the first thing I actually do, I walk onto the field, I look over my left shoulder. I do this every game. To remind myself, at the top of the video board, it says Home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And it's just a reminder. I'm like, it still hits me like, wow. I don't look at myself as, as an announcer as much as I do a, more like a fan with a microphone. I want that to be my persona here. But you know, I, 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 I treat every day like it's opening day because I feel like it's opening day. I'm that excited. And it wouldn't have happened
5: if his dad hadn't taken him to a ballpark. So you dads out there who think you're not making a difference spending time with your kids. And he's not rejected once, folks, or twice or three times, and he just kept at it. Joe Klimchak's story, a great story, and thanks to Robbie Davis for doing such a great job on this piece. Joe Klimchak's story, here on Our
6: American Story. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
0: work. Zumo Play.